My name is Nelson, and I'm glad to see you all. I'm lead pastor here. And we've been talking about moving into our neighborhoods, being fully present to where God has us. And I was thinking this week, somebody said to me once, live where your hands are. Have you ever heard that expression? Sometimes we're just always racing ahead or living in the past or thinking that life, more life is found someplace else, but live where your hands are. I think it's a good way to think about this. You know, um, I was making a capital campaign visit this week, and I found myself saying to someone, I hope Lisa, my wife Lisa and I live the rest of our life in the same place. And what I meant by that was, I think a lifetime is a pretty short time to live, and it's a good investment of a life to invest it in a single place. Because so much of what it means to move into the neighborhood and to be present to people and places happens over time. It germinates. It's not fast. And so I just hope um, that Lisa and I can live until our last dying breath meeting with people and investing in people's lives and pouring into kingdom work in West Richmond. So we've been exploring how the church relates to culture where we live. That's an important question. There's the church, and the church purports to want to be part of the transformation of culture. How does that work? So three weeks ago in Jeremiah 29, we learned God urges his people on the one hand, not to separate, and on the other hand, not to assimilate. And two weeks ago, we looked at a case study where Daniel and his friends were working out how to say yes and no to culture. And I would ask you, have you been conscious of saying yes and no to culture? We don't separate from culture, we don't say uh, all no's, and we don't assimilate, we don't say all yeses but we discern. That's how we become a part of God's transforming work there. And last week, we saw how the Apostle Paul started with culture, and then he moved beyond culture. So he moved in, he moved out, he moved in, he moved alongside, and then he moved beyond culture. He started with similarities. He said, uh, and incidentally, I hope you'll listen, if you miss sermons in the series, I hope you'll listen to them because they all especially these ones in October, they all build on each other. But Paul said, um, he said, he started with similarities. He said, I can see we're all religious here. And then he moved beyond culture by saying, but the life that you seek is found in the resurrected Jesus. So he was saying, everybody is tempted to love things that will never fill them. You know, every heart, every human heart is an idol factory. And the good news for all of us is that there's a floor to our disappointment. So our disappointment tells us where our idols are, but Jesus wants to fill us in the very places of our disappointment. That's the good news of the gospel as it relates to our lives and everybody else's. See, everybody's empty, everybody's searching, and Paul preached that the resurrected Jesus is the God we all seek. Now, That is something that I can say, but the penny has to drop. You know, we have to know it. We have to experience it. 
Well, this week, we're letting another text, the one that uh, Emily read, instruct and shape us about this matter of moving into the neighborhood. And we're looking at how Jesus answers this question, who is my neighbor? Now, it's a critical question if we're going to understand what it means to be faithful as disciples of Jesus in moving into our neighborhoods, this question, who is our neighbor? So in doing Bible study and reflection, uh, context is everything. I can remember, a, and you hear this in the real estate world too, but I, I remember a seminary professor saying to me, hey everybody, what are the three C's of Bible interpretation? And people said what they thought it was. Then he said, it's context, context, and context. <laughs> location, location, location. It's context, context, and context. And what he meant was that Uh, the way to understand the text that you're looking at is to read what immediately precedes the text and then also to read what follows the text. And uh, in the case of the parable of the Good Samaritan, what um, immediately precedes the parable is Jesus' exchange with the expert in the law. So verse 25 reads, on one occasion, an expert in the law who was a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Now, when somebody is very, very good at something, they become an expert. That's what it means to be an expert. You're very, very good at something. So this man was very, very good at interpreting and no doubt keeping the Jewish law. He was a model religious person. So to him, Jesus asked a question, teacher, uh, or, or, or I'm sorry, he asked Jesus a question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus often does, he answers a question with a question. And so he says, well, what is written in the law? And the the guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells him, well, you've answered correctly. And I think if, if, if uh, the parable, you know, the thing could have ended right there, right? We might not ever have had the parable of the Good Samaritan. It could have ended right there. You know, you've answered correctly. But it didn't. So Luke tells us what happens next, verse 28. But he wanted to justify himself. So we say that phrase with me. He wanted to justify himself. Let's say it one more time. He wanted to justify himself. I think this is a real hinge to the, to the text because if, if, if that wasn't there, there would be no parable of the Good Samaritan. The thing would have ended. And Philip Graham Ryken observes uh, that the lawyer's desire to justify himself related not merely to his initial question, but to his whole life before God. Remember, there were 613 laws of the Torah. There were 200 and some that were laws that said what you need to do. There were 300 and some that said what you had to avoid doing. And even if you only messed up on one of the laws, it was as if you messed up on all of them. And they understood that God rewards and he punishes, that he rewards law-keeping and he punishes law-breaking. This was the religious system under which the Jews lived. So the point is that the lawyer spent his entire life trying to justify himself. That's just the way he lived. And I've been thinking a lot this week that uh, most of us do the same. You know, I don't think we think about this constantly, but um, I know that I am oriented very much toward a world of justice. 
I, I think uh, we live in a world of sort of just desserts. You get what you deserve. Uh, we've learned that if we work hard and excel, we get rewarded. If we don't, we get punished. So this is the way schools work, and this is the way workplaces work, and this is the way our social groups work. And so we become a world that values competence. And so we do this in every realm. We dress to impress. Um, even when we're speaking, we try to you know, articulate in a way that will impress people or raise ourselves up in other people's eyes. I was at a meeting yesterday, and I was just watching the ordinary conversation I was having with people, and I, I sort of felt like all of us are trying to come out on top. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? You say something, and then they say something that seems to want to top what you said. It certainly was about their life after you said something about your life. And so conversation becomes this ping pong match of everybody trying to get on top. Everybody's trying to justify him or herself. And we do this constantly. But if you think about it, it's very exhausting. <laughs> it's very exhausting to live. I mean, we, we, we do it. We do it so often. We, we live so much, we don't realize how exhausting it is to live in the world we've created. And I think the reason is because we have to hide so much of who we are. We know that the way we present ourselves is a half-truth. So, in today's text, it was because this lawyer, this expert in the law, wanted to justify himself uh, that he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in answer, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. So recall, we had a parable series a year ago, and recall that Daryl Johnson had, uh, teaches that there are three S words that really help you interpret parables. And they are secular, surprise, and scandal. And so true to form, and, and you find them in all, all Jesus' parables, and it's really, it's really helpful to find those three movements in all of Jesus' parables. And true to form, this parable starts out with the secular, something that was very common in Jesus' day. Verse 30, a man was coming, going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The point was that people traveled on that road all the time. It's an ordinary secular start to the parable. It's just like a man had two sons or uh, any of the other parables. Then the man was attacked by robbers. This is what comes next, but this isn't the surprise. So as Riken writes, as it made its long and winding descent from Jerusalem, the Jericho Road passed through treacherous country. With its narrow passage and dangerous precipices, it was an ideal place for thieves and bandits to ambush lonely travelers. So the surprise wasn't the ambush. It happened all the time. The surprise was who didn't stop for the man by the side of the road. So first a priest came along. The priest was in charge of the religious ceremony and the sacrifices. And it's like if you were watching a show on stage, when the priest comes out, everybody would have breathed a sigh of relief and gone, the man's problems are over, a priest is here. But that didn't happen, and the same was true with the Levite. The Levite was a little less than the priest and was responsible for the temple liturgy. And Jesus' audience would have gotten their hopes up too when the Levite came out on stage of the parable. But neither of them stopped for the man by the side of the road. So in, the interpreters give the priest and the Levite excuses. Maybe they thought the man by the, maybe the priest and the Levite thought the man by the side of the road was dead, 
and they would become ritually unclean if they touched a dead man. And they would go for these shifts of their work at the temple, and they were two weeks long, and they couldn't risk the possibility of being ritually unclean for the first week of their shift. Well, maybe they thought the man deserved what he got, because why would you travel on this road alone? Everybody knew not to do that. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't seem to get at any of that. Here's what he says. He says about both the priest and the Levite, he says, they saw, they saw a man by the side of the road and then they passed by on the other side. And this is contrasted to verse 33, the Samaritan as he traveled, he saw a man by the side of the road. And then there's something different here. It says he, he, he felt pity for the man. You could translate this, he, he felt compassion. He had compassion on him. The Greek word is, is splachna, and it means to be deeply moved in the bottom of your stomach. Um, some commentators say in your bowels. Uh, just to be deeply moved physically for what you've seen. So one of the things that's lingered in me from last week's sermon uh, is how important it is what Jesus' disciples both see and they feel. So last week in Acts 17, Paul saw the idols in Athens and he felt this kind of pure jealousy on behalf of the covenant God who is faithful to love his people. And here again, we have a Samaritan who saw something and he feels something, you know, very deep, deep and important. So to be sure, the scandal of the parable is that it was the Samaritan who's featured. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The two groups hated each other. Kent Hughes writes that the, the hatred went back 400 years to Israel's exile in Babylon. So while the Jews kept their racial purity during their captivity, the Samaritans intermarried with the Babylonians. So the Samaritans were half-breeds. And the Jews looked down their noses at them. So so it was the Samaritan who noticed the man by the side of the road. He, He was the one who was moved by the man's misery and he stopped to help. So so what's the point of the parable? Uh, Jesus makes that clear to us. Uh, He then turns and says to the lawyer, lawyer, which one was a neighbor to the man? And the lawyer says, the one who has mercy, who had mercy on him. He can't even say the name of the man who had mercy, but he said the one who had mercy on him. He's the one who was a neighbor. And then Jesus says, well, go and do likewise. So when, when we think of moving into the neighborhood, one of the things that's clear to us is that Part of what it means to move into the neighborhood is to respond to people in their weakness and need. Now that can come in in lots of different forms, but when we see people in their weakness and their misery, we respond to them in their need. So who is our neighbor? It's whoever God brings across our path, who is in misery, who is feeling their sin and their weakness and their misery and their need. So a little drop in the bucket in this direction. Uh, We've been saying that on November 11th, we're not going to be having a worship service here. We're going to be having a time we call worship through service. And that's just a time to be present in your neighborhoods. We're giving you back Sunday morning. Uh, 
And we're saying, take that time, and maybe if God has been sort of um, kindling some sort of vision or cultivating that in your heart, um, has caused you to notice a need or notice a person to whom you want to extend hospitality or kindness or caring, that this would be a morning where we would give you back the time and that you could act on that. And so that's November 11th where we move into the neighborhood. And that's, I think, uh, a really fitting response to the parable of the Good Samaritan. But there's something else that I have been seeing this week that's crucial to the parable of the Good Samaritan. So again, and it all comes back to why a Samaritan? Now, geographically, Samaria was sandwiched between Judea, Jewish Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. So Samaria is sort of sandwiched in between. And as we mentioned earlier, the Jews looked down their noses at the Samaritans. And, you know, in John 4, it was a Samaritan woman who was ostracized by the other women and whom Jesus met alone at the well. And in that account, John wrote, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So why a Samaritan as the hero of the parable? You know, I I think it's because the Samaritans were a marginalized and rejected people. They knew they couldn't survive in a world of justice. They, They wouldn't come out on top. They can't play that game. And they, more than the Jews, knew they needed God's mercy. So, when was the last time that you were conscious of needing mercy? I asked that question to my wife, Lisa, and I thought she was going to go away and think about it. And she shot back. She said, in marriage. And I immediately got it. I couldn't have, I couldn't have said it, but I immediately got it. Um, any, anybody who's married or will be married, marriage is very exposing. You can't really hide in marriage. You can't put your best foot forward. Marriage is very exposing. And a lot of the time in marriage, what you're hoping for is that your spouse will have mercy on you. I think that's really true. I think that's true for family members of all types. We hope that they'll have mercy on us. I think it's also true in friendships. I have a friend who is one of my very best friends, and each year we go on a ski trip. And it's really what I think of as a brotherhood trip because um, we'll start the mornings and we'll read scripture together. His father was my preaching professor in seminary, and he's very astute. He happens to be a lawyer but he's very astute biblically. So we'll read scripture together and we'll pray and then we'll go out and ski. And while we ski, we talk through the issues of life and we just have conversation. We come together and we support each other and bear each other's burdens and we just have a relationship of love. Well, two years ago, I opened up in conversation with this friend, uh, something that was, has been hard for me in this relationship. And it's just a dynamic that he and I have Uh, that is shaming for me and has been for a long time. And I named it. And he listened and we talked it through, but it wasn't clean. And we didn't resolve it then and we still haven't resolved it. And how did that leave me feeling? Uh, I feel very vulnerable 
It's a very important relationship to me, but I feel vulnerable in it. I feel like he might reject me. I mean, will he? Maybe that's irrational, but will he reject me now? I feel I need his mercy. Do you get the point? That's always what happens when you enter into the vulnerability of exposing who you are. So so let's take a deeper look at the actions of the Good Samaritan. The scandal is that the Samaritan is the one who took pity on the man, but he didn't just stop. It says, the text says he went went to the man by the side of the road and he bandaged his wounds and he poured on oil and wine. He could have stopped at this point and said, "I, I did what I could, but he continued. He put the man on his donkey and in the Middle East, if you see a man riding a donkey and another man walking along beside, that means the man on the donkey is the master and the one walking beside is the servant. So this man became a servant, a slave, to help the man who was in need. And who did that? You know, who gave up his own glory to become a slave? Jesus Christ became a servant so that he could save us. Then it continues. He put the man on a donkey, brought him to an end. He took care of him. Then it says the next day which means that he spent the rest of the first day and then the whole night taking care of him. Then it says he took out two denarii. And every, all the commentators say this is two days of wages. And they also say something I've never noticed before. They said one denarii will pay for 12 nights of a hotel room. So several of them said he paid for 24 nights in the end. I'd never noticed this before. The point was, he was saying, whatever is needed. I I want him to be able to stay there until he's healed. You know, well, what's the limit of the cost that you can bear? There is no limit. And so again, who is it that spared no cost to save us? In Philippians 2, it says, Jesus emptied himself of, of his glory. He became nothing. He was willing to bear any cost, even the cost of his own life. So, here's the thing. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think we all, we enter this parable and we immediately identify with the Good Samaritan because Jesus then says, go and do likewise, like the Good Samaritan. But there's always something more. There's always a, there's always a deeper layer of meaning in Scripture. And we have the privilege of being able to look and read this parable after the cross and the resurrection. So, we identify with the Good Samaritan, but I think there's a deeper layer. I think Jesus wants to identify with the man by the side of the road. You know, do you and do I identify with the man who needs mercy? So there's a There's a quote in your worship guide, and it's from John Calvin, who lived in the 16th century, and he is called a father, a forefather of Presbyterianism. So look at this reflection. He said, John Calvin wrote 400 years ago, so many people uh, have a picture of divine mercy, which gives them very little comfort. So 
do you have a picture of divine mercy? And, and the second question is, does it give you any comfort? Does it matter? They have the idea that this mercy is great and overflowing. They, they believe it has been given to many and is available to all. But they cannot be sure whether it will reach them personally. Or rather, whether they can reach it. So their knowledge stops short and leaves them in midair. So the question is, um, how do you relate to your need for mercy, for your need for divine mercy? This text has been very disruptive for me this week. I haven't liked it at all. And I think it's been working on me. And I think it's because the Holy Spirit has been allowing me to see some deeper threads. And I've also realized in my own heart, um, I prefer a world of justice. I'm quite willing to get in there and do my best and try to survive a world of justice. And there are two things I'm realizing about mercy. First of all, I don't like mercy because I have to die to my own pride to receive mercy. Mercy is not something I do. Mercy is something I receive, and I have to give glory to someone else to receive it. That's, that's life-changing for me. That's really important. The other thing um, that I'm realizing about mercy is, uh, I think there's a void of it in my own heart. And I think there's a void of it uh, in the church. So this is what's so interesting to me. I, and I have to be careful how I speak about this, but let me just start here. Um, you know, when we talk about mercy, a lot of us will think about politics. And I would say about politics that uh, neither side gets it entirely right. And for sure, as it relates to mercy, uh, there is a third way. And it's the way of Jesus, and it can only be the way of Jesus. And so we don't extend mercy because we're do-gooders extending mercy. We can only st- extend mercy when we've received mercy from Jesus. But I do have to say uh, that there's a, there's a, my own heart is devoid of the mercy that the scriptures and Jesus teaches. And sometimes I look at the church and I feel the same way about the church. And what do I mean by that? So I look at the church sometimes and it seems to me that the church world is just another expression of every other realm. You know, businesses are moving from strength to strength, and churches are moving from strength to strength. And so people will say, well, I went to that church, and it was awesome. And what do they mean? They mean, wow, they really sort of mobilized all the competencies in a way that it worked for me, in a, in a, you know, in a world where uh, efforts are rewarded. But here's the thing about the church in the world and what I long for in our church. I would long for our church, yeah, I want us to have a 
beautiful facility. I want us to be a beautiful and competent expression of the church. But I want people to be less sort of scratching their heads when they experience us and go, wow, who are those people? You know, there's something, they're not, they're not playing the same game. They're not operating from the same paradigm as the rest of the, there's something different right at the heart of them. And I think it's this thing related to mercy. See, mercy really turns your world upside down. Um, I was talking to someone this week, and he said that he used to see beggars on the street and think, uh, why don't you get a job at McDonald's? But now, he said he sees a beggar on the street and he says, um, I, don't, I don't know your story. I, I would need to know your story. And I feel that that, that touched me and it, it transforms me. And it's something that's happening in me too. You, 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 you can't have mercy on somebody else until you've received mercy yourself. Do you, do you see what I mean? We're all wired for justice. And I think you might come into the suburbs and say, well, I live in the suburbs and I never see anybody in obvious sin and mercy. I'm misery. And as someone said to me this week, I wonder if the priest and the Levite even remembered seeing the man on the side of the road later that night. You see what I'm saying? Well, We may be bumping into people on the side of the road all the time, but we just don't have eyes to see. We haven't experienced mercy, so we don't extend mercy. We haven't experienced mercy, so we don't recognize mercy. We haven't received mercy, and so we aren't just really inclined to offer it to somebody else. I think this is a very, very challenge. If we think about moving into the neighborhood, I feel mostly that this is a huge, huge challenge for us as we think about what it means for the gospel to be subversive. You know, we don't want to go in our neighborhoods and just be another expression of an organization trying to do good things. There's something that is animated in us that Jesus wants uh, to be very, very different. So, so here's the thing. The cross says, at the end of the day, you and I cannot survive a world based on justice. You may be super competent. You may have gone to school, gotten degrees. You may have worked hard, worked hard to be good. But you and I will not survive a world based on justice. A pure and holy God just who he is. Can't, there's, there's so many things. In you know, the truth about you and the truth about me is there's some dignified things about me, but there's some undignified things about me. There's some soft spots in my character. There's some dark places in my heart. There's some regrets I have in my past that if I could go back and have a do-over, I would. And it's the same for you. And so ultimately, when Jesus went to the cross, he atoned for the sins of the world. He, became, he satisfied God's justice 
so that then he could become an expression of God's mercy. And that's the gospel. So we're going to close. And so I'm going to invite the band to come up. I want to close with this. One of the places I feel a lot is at funerals. And I feel a lot because somebody's just died. And death is enormous. Death, death, we're all overmatched by death. Uh, we just don't think about it. And people will say to me about the church, they'll say, salvation isn't just a ticket to heaven, you know. And I'll say, but it is a ticket to heaven. And you know, when you die, and people are dying all the time, when I'm at a funeral, that's when the air clears. And that's where I am more likely than ever to rely on God's mercy. And there's this weird thing we do at funerals. We eulogize people, and we remember all the good things about them. As, as, if, as if their lives can justify what happens to them when they find themselves face to face with the holy God. See, what's, what's clearer to me at funerals than any time is that the ground of my hope and the ground of my existence is mercy. And thanks be to God, it's all mercy. It's all mercy. It's all mercy. When Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied God's justice. And when we look at the vision of Christ coming again, it's the lamb on the throne who atoned for our sin. And he's a picture of God's mercy. And that's what we cling to uh, at funerals. And that's what uh, God has expressed uh, through the offering of his son. So sometimes I think, can I just start there and reel that back into my life? So friends, just, just finally, um, I have sort of been led uh, in my own life, uh, my response to this message and the response that I want to invite you to is uh, one of confession and just acknowledging if you find yourself uh, just living from strength to strength, and without really a deep and transforming experience of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, and that, and that has not shaped your, your identity and your view of things, then maybe you would join me and just confess your need to God. Uh, maybe you have, on the other hand, maybe you have received God's mercy, and today is um, maybe just like a breath of fresh air. Maybe you've, you've bumped up against uh, something that you were overmatched by and you've come face to face with your limits and you've come to the realization um, I can't do it on my own. I can't justify my life myself. So maybe you would receive this as a reassurance of God's mercy through his son. So will you respond in the way that you're led? And I'm just going to kneel, and I'll invite anybody else who wants to 
you know, to, to respond um, this way also to Neil. So let's pray. Father, one of my deepest desires for this church is that we would be um, constantly repenting and uh, in a world so ruled by justice, you are this unexpected, countercultural uh, expression of mercy. And we want to thank you, uh, thank you, thank you, that you have expressed yourself that way. And we trust that you are revealing yourself, not just back in time, but again and again. And that the work that you want to do in our midst is to make us that weird, unusual church that seems to be animated by something way different than everybody else. So, uh, Jesus, uh, you are the good Samaritan. You are the perfect neighbor. You neighbor us before we can neighbor anybody else. And so we pray that you would be our neighbor this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.